Father, thank you for your unending love, for your amazing grace. Father, thank you for the work that you have begun in each of us and your promise to complete that work. For your command that we work out our salvation with fear and trembling and the promise that you are the one who will work in us to will and do for your good pleasure. I pray, Lord, as we seek you in your word this evening, as we begin this fun little adventure in First and Second Kings, that you would guide us, that you would speak to us, that you would lead us and help us. In Jesus' name, amen. So the author of First Kings. Now, I've been a Christian for 26 years. I have heard the entire Bible taught on a couple of occasions. I've listened to it all the way through. Uh, I couldn't tell you how many times I've actually read the whole Bible. That's not bragging. This is all to point something out. Until I studied for this for tonight, I didn't know who the author of 1 Kings was. Never even dawned on me who the author of 1 Kings might be. I didn't really care. Any guesses? Samuel? Nope. Samuel was dead, brother. He'd been dead for a while. <laughs> I mean, he was good, but not that good. Nope, not Solomon. I'll give you one more hint. It is one of the major prophets. That narrows it down to four people. Nope. Yes. Just go to the front of the book. Was it Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy? Um, it is believed, and this is based on Jewish tradition, that it was Jeremiah. Now, Jeremiah's uh, ministry took place in a time that was a couple hundred years after this, but we're going to get to that in a second. Uh, so it is believed, though, that the author of First and Second Kings, remember First and Second Kings, uh, just like First and Second Samuel and First and Second Chronicles, were not originally two books. Um, at one point in time, they were Samuel, Kings, and Chronicles. Uh, they... I, should look up when they were separated. Maybe we talked about it in 1 Samuel, but I don't remember. Uh, but when you read the book of Jeremiah, you see that what's going on in Jeremiah's ministry is very close to the exile of Judah to Babylon, which we will get to at the end of 2 Kings. So that puts the date coinciding with the exile in Jeremiah's ministry in some, somewhere in the late 500s B.C. to early 400s B.C. Now remember, when we're talking about B.C., late 500s would mean what we would consider a low number, like 510, 515 B.C. And early 400s B.C. would be considered what we think is a high number, like the 490s. Because if I remember correctly, Judah went into captivity, because the, 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 there were three versions of it. The final one, I think, was 496. 480s, it's somewhere in there, give or take 20 years. This was like 3,500 years ago. I could be close, 2,500 years ago. So it did coincide with Jeremiah's ministry, but the time covered is a time period from around 975 B.C. till about 850 B.C. So it covers about 125 years. Keep in mind, so you might think, well, you know, Jeremiah let's say he wrote it in the 500s BC, that's still 300 plus years difference. How would he know? 
Well, I mean, first, the Bible is inspired by the Holy Spirit. Moses wasn't there when God created the heavens and the earth. The Holy Spirit inspired him. He wrote it down. Thus, we have the book of Genesis. Um, But just because it's fun to have explanations that are a little more practical and a little less supernatural, because I'm fine with the supernatural answer, by the way, uh, all of this would have been recorded. All of it would have been written down. It would have been kept either in the king's palace or in the temple. But all of this would have been written down. So the suggestion is, after Jerusalem fell and Babylon carried away everybody from Judah, the king of Babylon, and you find this, I think it talks about it in Chronicles, and you can, find, you can read about it in Jeremiah too. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar told, thought Jeremiah had defected. Because the whole time they were besieged, Jeremiah kept telling everybody in Judah, surrender, they're going to win. This is silly, right? We, we don't have a way out. This is God's punishment. You haven't listened to him. Now you're going into exile for 70 years. And Daniel actually read the book of Jeremiah. That's how he knew 70 years of captivity was coming to an end. But that's, that's why the Bible is so cool. But one of many reasons. But Jeremiah chose to stay in Jerusalem. So just put this picture in your mind. Everybody's gone except for the poor that were left behind to tend the vineyards and the the crops and all of that. Jeremiah is about the only person who had some sort of position within Jerusalem, within Judah, who hadn't either been killed or carried off into captivity. Maybe he's wandering around the temple and he finds all these records and goes, huh, Maybe the stupidity of the last 125 years should be written down or at least put together or something of that nature. Because you remember, he actually wrote his book twice. Well, he had a scribe write it twice because the first time he wrote it, the king burned it and uh, threw him in prison and then they wrote it down again. So it's very possible that he found all these records and goes, yep, I remember that and I remember that. And then it went back a little farther and he goes, oh, I heard about that. And I heard about that, and then under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, boom, we have First and Second Kings. Yay! Everybody feel good about that? Um, the theme of First Kings. The theme of First Kings, well, it's a historical narrative. So it's here to teach us the history of Israel, of God's interactions with his people, the behavior of the kings in both kingdoms. Now that is the unique thing about first and second kings. First and second kings gives us the rule and reign of kings in both the southern kingdom of Judah and the northern kingdom, which eventually became Samaria. Uh, And we're going to get to that split. I think it's up around chapter 12. Um, When we get to first chronicles, first chronicles focuses on the kings of Judah. Now, that's going to become really important. I'm going to say it now because you're going to forget it by the time we get there, probably. So why do we have the Chronicles of the Kings of of Judah, First and Second Chronicles, but not the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel, which is mentioned several places in Scripture? Well, it's a very cool reason. We don't need the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel, of the Northern Kingdom, because Jesus didn't come through any of those tribes. We needed the chronicles of the kings of Judah in order to follow David's line all the way down to Jesus. So when we get to those nine, ten chapters of genealogies, that's why they're important. 
And I'm going to be honest with you. I read them once. (laughs) 20-some years ago, I read them once. And ever since then, every time I come to 1 Chronicles, I skip those chapters and move on with my life. So, now, going along with that, we get a number of warnings and lessons about obedience to the word of God. We get a number of references and or allusions to the book of Deuteronomy. So we know that Jeremiah had access to the first five books. What we call the first five books of Moses probably had access to um, Joshua, Judges, uh, Ruth, and First and Second Samuel as well. But other themes that we're going to see, we are going to see that there is only one true God, because this is often a point of contention between God and the wicked kings of the north and south. They want to worship idols, and they want to worship Baal, and they want to worship Ashtoreth, and they want to worship Molech, and so on and so forth. And God keeps going, well, that's dumb. There's only one God. They don't exist. Um, Eventually, we are going to get to um, Elijah and the prophets of Baal. That's in 1 Kings, one of my favorite sections of Scripture. You know, if anybody had ever written down all the times I've said that, It's one of my favorite plays, one of my favorite this, that, or the other thing. This is a really long list. Um, We're going to see that God controls history. We're going to see that he demands our worship. We're going to see things like the content and place of true worship, the consequences of false worship, and that God is a gracious lawgiver and promise giver. So I know that's a lot. If you want to see those afterwards, you can definitely look at my notes. But those are really the themes of the book. Now, let's talk about the outline of the book of 1 Kings. The first 11 chapters focuses on Solomon. Now, when we get to 1 Chronicles, he gets a little more space. But here in 1 Kings, it's the first 11 chapters focus on Solomon. When we get to chapter 12, his son Rehoboam takes over the kingdom And then the kingdom is divided. Rehoboam rules over Judah. And uh, Jeroboam takes the northern ten tribes. And Jeroboam sets up the two golden calves as idols because he's afraid that if the people return to Jerusalem to worship at the temple, that their hearts will return to Rehoboam. We're going to meet Elijah, which is really fun. We're going to see him deal with the wickedness of the kings with their idolatry, and with the prophets of Baal. We'll also be introduced to Elisha. Um, But Elisha doesn't really take over as the prophet until 2 Kings. However, Elijah's importance is quite extensive. He is predicted to come before Jesus' return in Malachi chapter 4. And he was on the Mount of Transfiguration with Moses meeting Jesus in Revelation chapter 17. And I, and oh, well, there's a few others, who, when we take a stab at who, who the two witnesses are in Revelation, I want to say it's chapter 11. I think I'm wrong, though. Is it Revelation 11? Revelation 19 is Jesus' return. It is the two. Woohoo! Look at me go. Um Revelation chapter 11, the two witnesses, there are many who think that the two witnesses are Moses and Elijah. 
Uh, one, because they met with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. And two, because when we refer to the law and the prophets, well, Moses is the one who wrote the law down. And Elijah um, was one of the more prominent prophets of the Old Testament during the times of the kings. So it would make sense that they were that they are the two witnesses. Now, I can't prove that because we're not told who they are. There's a lot of other people who put forth a lot of other names. Some people think it's Enoch and Elijah because Enoch and Elijah are the only two people in the Bible who didn't die, um, which is really fun to think about because even Jesus died. He came back, uh, but both Enoch and Elijah were sort of raptured before their death. Um, some people will say it's going to be Zerubbabel, who was uh, the priest when the temple was built after the time of exile. And I am on a completely different topic now. But Elijah's really important. Do you like that? Just came right back like nothing happened. Nothing to see here, folks. Move along. But Elijah's really important. And we're going to spend a lot of time looking at his ministry in 1 Kings. So let's talk for a moment about the history of salvation. All of the Old Testament points to the one who would fulfill it. In other words, the whole Old Testament points us to Jesus as the one who would fulfill the whole Old Testament. The only Son of God, God incarnate, who died on the cross for our sins and rose again. Now, a lot of people like to skip some of these books, like to skip Kings and Chronicles, and just like they like to skip books of the law. However, Contained in these Old Testament books is the history of our salvation. How God created, preserved, corrected, punished, and restored the nation of Israel. For one reason. To bring Jesus, the Messiah, the one who would sit on the throne of David forever, to us. So you've got to think about that. All of the good kings, all of the bad kings... All of the prophets, all of the wars, all of the, all of the, all of the, was all done for one purpose. Ultimately to bring Jesus so we could be saved. That's pretty cool to think about. You guys ready? Chapter one. So when we finished up with second Samuel, we saw David buy a threshing floor in order to sacrifice to the Lord after he took a census, and that brought the wrath of God down on Israel. Now, he refused to take the threshing floor, even though it was offered to him, but he said he would not offer to the Lord that which cost him nothing. Now, that's where we left David. So tonight, as we begin First Kings, we pick up when David is a pretty old man. Now, he's about 70 years old. In our day and age, 70 doesn't seem that old. Now, when I was 20, 70 seemed ancient. Now that I'm approaching 50, I'm like, well, 70 to kids, not all that bad. Uh, now, now, you know, 140, that's old, right? But anything under that's not too bad. Um, especially when I play pickleball with people in their late 80s, and I'm like, you move as good as I do, and you're 40 years older than me. <laughs> but that's where we left David. But at 70 years old, I personally think it's the mileage, not the years. David did not have an easy life. He was very much a warrior king. He fought many, many battles. I can only imagine, even though he survived them all, that he probably got, you know, knocked around a few times, probably came home more than once with some bumps and bruises. 
you know, and, and over time that takes its toll. But at this time, he's approaching his death. So 1 Kings chapter 1, verse 1. Now King David was old, advanced in years, and they put covers on him, but he could not get warm. Therefore his servant said to him, Let a young woman, a virgin, be sought for our lord the king, and let her stand before the king and let her care for him, and let her lie in your bosom that our lord the king may be warm. So they sought for a lovely young woman throughout all the territory of Israel and found Abishag the Shunammite and brought her to the king. The young woman was very lovely, and she cared for the king and served him, but the king did not know her. So because of his age and failing health, he couldn't keep warm, right? Um, sometimes when people get older and have various health problems, well, even when they don't get older, like my poor baby girl who's got thyroid problems, it's 86 degrees, we're all sweating, she's got a sweatshirt on and she's under a blanket because thyroid causes her trouble to regulate her body temperature. So maybe King David had thyroid problems. <laughs> Whatever the case, he couldn't keep warm no matter what they did. So somebody comes up with this solution. One of his servants says, Let, let's find you a virgin to snuggle with. And David, being the godly man he is, said, okay. <laughs> I don't care how old he is. Um, yeah, anyways. <clears throat> so she essentially, though, becomes his wife and lays in bed with him to keep him warm. She serves him. She was probably feeding him, probably helping him to their version of the restroom, so on and so forth. Now, Abishag, becoming one of David's wives, will become extremely important in just a couple chapters. But we're going to wait for that. The fact that David never had sex with her is important as well, but that's all going to come out after David croaks. Verse 5. Then Adonijah the son of Haggith, exalted himself, saying, you know, as, when you read that, the, the first thing that comes to mind is what Jesus said, that whoever, humbles, whoever uh, exalts himself will be humble, but whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Adonijah exalted himself, saying, I will be king. And he prepared for himself chariots and horsemen and 50 men to run before him. And his father had not rebuked him at any time by saying, why have you done so? He was also very good looking. His mother had borne him after Absalom. Then he conferred with Joab, the son of Zeruiah, and with Abiathar the priest, and they followed and helped Adonijah. But Zadok the priest, Benaiah the son of Jehoiada, Nathan the prophet, Shimei, Ray, and the mighty men who belonged to David were not with Adonijah. And Adonijah sacrificed sheep and oxen and fatted cattle by the stone of Zoalath, which is by an Rogel. And since we all know where these places are, I'm not going to describe it to you. Just get a good Bible map and you'll see. He also invited all his brothers, the king's son, and all the men of Judah, the king's servants. But he did not invite Nathan the prophet, Benaiah, the mighty men, or Solomon, his brother. Hmm... So one of David's sons, Adonijah, makes a play for the throne. Now, his name is actually quite beautiful. The word Adonai in Hebrew is Lord, and then Jah or Yah, Yahweh, the name of God. So it literally means Yahweh is Lord. I mean, that's a cool name. 
Now, he was Absalom's younger brother, but they did not have the same mother. Haggith was not Absalom's mother. Um, but he was the next oldest living son. So he made a deal with Joab. And he made a deal with uh, Abiathar the priest. And he said, you know what? Help me get the throne and you guys will have a place. But not everyone was with him. Zadok the priest, Nathan, a few others named. So he holds a sacrifice and a feast and he invites quite a few people, right? All the men of Judah, all, the, all of his brothers. But there's some very telling exceptions. He doesn't invite Nathan because Nathan is loyal to David. He doesn't invite Benaiah because Benaiah is loyal to David. He doesn't invite David's mighty men, which is a pretty bad idea, right? These are the 600 guys that have been with David since the very beginning. There is no way these guys are going to betray their king. And he doesn't invite Solomon. Now, we're going to find out in a moment that David had already declared that Solomon would be king. Adonijah would have known that. So, though he has Joab at this point, and he has Zadok, he does not have Abiathar, who was actually the high priest. And he doesn't have the support of Nathan the prophet, so he probably didn't have the support of any other prophets. He doesn't have the support of the military forces or all of his brothers. Now, if you think about that, there's no way this is going to end well. Now, we can see that, mostly because we've all read the next few chapters, but how did he not guess that this wasn't going to go well for him? Now, there's a comment in here that his father had never rebuked him, which I think is really interesting. It's in verse 6. His father had not rebuked him at any time by saying, why have you done so? Um, when Solomon, who wrote much of Proverbs, wrote much of Proverbs, he often spoke of the need to discipline children. For example, Proverbs 13, 24, he who spares his rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him promptly. And there's a big deal about that in our day and age. That, oh, well, you, oh, you, can't, you can't do that to children, right? They, they take this verse out of context and they say, well, you should spare the rod. Because some translations, instead of saying hates his son, say spoil his son, right? Spare the rod, spoil the child. That's what you should do, is don't punish them. Give them everything they want. And uh, we kind of see the results of that, don't we? And over and over again, I have met many people and I've seen it happen to many families. I've seen it tear families apart. Where you have a child who's just left to their own devices. They're given everything they want. They're never disciplined. And they go off the rails. Eventually, they just go off the rails. Now, that doesn't mean you have to spank. Because I know some people don't believe in spanking. I did. <laughs> but some people don't believe in spanking. All right, always on the bottom. Always to correct, not to punish. The intention wasn't to hurt, it was to teach. And in all fairness, I've been spanked by God a few times. Um, but David was really bad at this. Of all the great things about David, he apparently wasn't the greatest father. Right? We go back to all the stuff we talked about in First and Second Samuel. 
He's got one son who rapes his daughter. The other son plots his murder. The other son kills him. That other son finally comes back. David says, all right, you're forgiven. But he refuses to talk to the kid. Finally talks to the kid, Absalom. Absalom figures out that things are never going to be right between him and his dad. So he, he sets up a coup. Now here we are. We got another kid who's doing the same thing. Now you would have think he would have learned from what happened to his brother Absalom. But Adonijah apparently wasn't the sharpest knife in the drawer. But whatever the case, the consequences of David's failure as a father are very clear. These also are part of the consequences of his sin with Bathsheba and murder of Uriah, but it doesn't change. Now, God feels the same way about us. This is why we are told in Proverbs chapter 3, verses 11 and 12, My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor detest his correction. For whom the Lord loved, Lord loves, he corrects, just as a father the son in whom he delights. We should never despise the chastening of the Lord. Because if he didn't care about us, he wouldn't correct us. Now let's talk about Joab for a second. It makes perfect sense to me that Joab follows Adonijah. If you remember back to First and Second Samuel, there were multiple times, at least three, that David tried to get rid of Joab. And every time David tried to get rid of Joab, Joab ended up on top through lies and murder. On top of the fact that even if the whole country didn't know, Joab knew that David murdered Uriah. Now, maybe that didn't come out. Maybe it didn't. We're not told in Scripture, but Joab knew. So Joab was not in favor with the king, nor was he in favor of the king's family. And Benaiah, who was now the commander of David's bodyguard, was most likely going to take over the military forces. Now, when that happened, what was Joab going to do? So he here sees an opportunity to try to keep himself alive, and he throws in his lot with Adonijah. It's not going to work. Am I giving away, right? Spoiler alert. It's not going to work. Joab's going to be dead in a couple chapters. <gasps> Did you not see that coming? Wow! Bruce Willis was dead the whole time. <laughs> Verse 11. So Nathan spoke to Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon, saying, Have you not heard that Adonijah, the son of Haggith, has become king? And David, our Lord, does not know it. Come, please, let me now give you advice that you may save your own life and the life of your son Solomon. Go immediately to King David and say to him, Did you not, my lord, O king, swear to your maidservant, saying, Assuredly, your son Solomon shall reign after me, and he shall sit on my throne. Why then has Adonijah become king? Then, while you are still talking, there with the king, I will also come in after you and confirm your words. So Bathsheba went into the chamber to the king, and the king was very old, and Abishag the Shunammite was serving the king. And Bathsheba, you know... I'm sorry, I just have to stop for a moment. This is why polygamy is such a bad idea. Right? Could you just imagine Bath? So at one point in time, 
Bathsheba was the top of the list, right? She was worth lying over. She was worth murdering over. Now she's probably slightly older. We don't know exactly how old. Um, Well, maybe we'll find out. I haven't looked that far ahead. And I don't remember if we find out how old Solomon was, but he was probably in his 20s at this point. So Bathsheba's a little older. She walks in. There's a 17-year-old girl walking around, gorgeous young lady who's been lying naked with the king. This would cause issues, I'm thinking, among the various women who were the, the, the king's wives. Just throwing that out there. So she comes in, probably shoots, right? The Bible doesn't say this, is my opinion. She probably comes in, gives Abishag a dirty look, and then she goes over and talks to the king. Uh, But Bathsheba bowed and did homage to the king, verse 16. And the king said, what is your wish? And she said to him, my lord, you swore by the Lord your God to your maidservant, saying, assuredly, Solomon, your son, shall reign after me, and he shall sit on my my throne. So now look, Adonijah has become king, and now, my lord, the king, you do not know about it. He has sacrificed oxen and fattened cattle and sheep in abundance and has invited all the sons of the king, Abiathar the priest, and Joab the commander of the army. But Solomon, your servant, he has not invited. And as for you, my lord, O king, the eyes of all Israel are on you, that you should tell them who will sit on the throne of my lord, the king, after him. I like that part. Right? We don't, we don't get the whole conversation between her and Nathan. We're just, Nathan tells her what to say. But she looks at the king and she goes, everybody's watching, David. Everybody wants to know what you're going to do. Verse 21. Otherwise it will happen when my lord the king rests with his fathers that I and my son Solomon will be counted as offenders. And just then, while she was still talking to the king, by chance, right? By chance. Nathan the prophet also came in. So they told the king, saying, Here is Nathan the prophet. And when he came in before the king, he bowed before the king with his face to the ground. And Nathan said, My lord, O king, have you said Adonijah shall reign after me, and he shall sit on my throne? For he has gone down today and sacrificed oxen and cattle and sheep in abundance. He invited all the king's sons, all the commanders of the army, Abiathar the priest, and look, they're eating and drinking before him. And they say, Long live King Adonijah. So Nathan kind of sweetens the pot. But he has not invited me, me, your servant, nor Zadok the priest, nor Benaiah the son of Jehoiada, nor your servant Solomon. Has this thing been done by my lord the king? And you have not told your servants who should sit on the throne of my lord the king after him? I love Nathan. Every time we see Nathan, he is just smooth. And, you know, at this point, he's pretty sure the king's not going to have him killed. (laughs) He's like, why would you put Adonijah on the throne and not tell me? Maybe you didn't tell everybody else, but why didn't you tell me? So let's stop for a moment. So Nathan gives this advice to Bathsheba to keep her and Solomon alive. He knows that if Adonijah becomes king because David had said Solomon would sit on his throne... He knows that Adonijah will kill Bathsheba and Solomon. And from a political standpoint, that makes sense. Um, I mean, it's kind of a cruddy thing to do. Solomon was still his brother. And Bathsheba, you know, his quote-unquote stepmother. Um, But he wouldn't want the competition. So Bathsheba tells David what's going on. Nathan comes in. And apparently, we're going to find out here in a moment, that Bathsheba had stepped out when Nathan came in. 
and uh, confirms this story. Now, I personally think this is a silly way to do it. Right? I think this is a silly way to do it. Why didn't Nathan, right? When, when Nathan murdered Uriah, Nathan came in, told David a parable. When David got all upset, he said, dude, you're the one. You're the sinner. Why didn't he just come and go, hey, David, I know you already declared Solomon king. Did you hear about what Adonijah's doing? And David probably would have gone, no. What's he doing? Well, he set himself up as king and David could have gone, oh, well, we better fix this. But no, instead, he sends Bathsheba in then he comes in. I just, I, I think a straightforward conversation would have yielded the same results. David is still cognitively aware. We're going to find that out here in a moment. And we see what the things that he says. Um, so I think this is silly. Me personally. This is why Jesus told us not to swear. He said, let your yes be yes and your no be no. For whatever is more than these is from the evil one. Matthew 5, 37. Because even though the things they were saying are true. The way they did it was deceptive. And it was, I don't think it was necessary. Now, it is not odd or out of place that the succession of the kingdom did not pass to the oldest son. David was not the oldest, but the youngest of Jesse's children when he was chosen as monarch. And he apparently was allowed to choose his successor. Uh, Now, we're going to see that a lot more as Kings and Chronicles go on, that the oldest son does not always inherit the throne. Usually because they get murdered, but that's, you know, we'll talk about more of that more as time goes on. Verse 28. Then King David answered and said, call Bathsheba to me. So she came into the king's presence. That's how we know she stepped out. And she stood before the king and the king took an oath and said, as the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life from every distressed, just as I swore to you by the Lord God of Israel, saying, Assuredly, Solomon, your son, shall be king after me, and he shall sit on my throne in my place. So I certainly will do this day. Then Bathsheba bowed with her face to the earth and paid homage to the king and said, Let my lord, King David, live forever. And King David said, Call to me Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, and Benaiah the son of Jehoiada. So they came before the king, and the king also said to them, Take with you the servants of your lord, and have Solomon my son ride on my own mule, And take him down to Gihon. There, let Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet anoint him king over Israel and blow the horn and say, Long live King Solomon. Then you shall come up after him and he shall come and sit on my throne and he shall be king in my place for I have appointed him to be ruler over Israel and Judah. So (laughs) Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, answered the king and said, Amen. May the Lord God of my Lord the king Say so too. As the Lord has been with my Lord the King, even so may he be with Solomon and make his throne greater than the throne of my Lord King David. So Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, Benaiah the son of Jehoiada. There must have been a lot of Benaiahs back then since they keep saying which one it was. The Cherethites and the Pelethites went down and had Solomon ride on King David's meal. Now remember the Cherethites and the Pelethites were the mighty men, or they were made up of the mighty men uh, and had become David's bodyguards. And Benaiah was the one who was their commander. So they took down, uh, or they went down with Solomon, 
riding on King David's mule and took him to Gihon, which was the appropriate place to anoint the kings um, at this point. So then Zadok the priest took a horn of oil from the tabernacle. He anointed Solomon and they blew the horn and all the people said, Long live King Solomon! And all the people went up after him and the people played the flutes and rejoiced with great joy so that the earth seemed to split with their sound. So we're going to take a break there. So David, right, he's obviously still all there mentally, even though physically he was he was breaking down. And he says, all right, nope, Solomon's going to be king. So he has Nathan and Zadok uh, and Benaiah and his own private bodyguard take Solomon down to Gihon on David's mule. Now, that may not seem like a really big deal, but it is. And this is why. Uh, the Israelites were not allowed to breed mules. Because remember, the Israelites were not allowed to crossbreed animals. And a mule is a cross between a horse and a donkey. Just like a z-donk is a cross between a zebra and a donkey. Um, I don't know why, I just really like the word z-donk. Um, so in order to have a mule, it had to be imported. Which would mean it would be very expensive. And most likely, the king was the only one who had a mule. I mean, maybe a few other really wealthy Israelites might have one, but this was a big deal. This this would be like, uh, you know, let's put it in modern terms. And let's say the, the president of the United States had the right to pick his successor. And he picked his successor and said, all right, you get on Air Force One so you can go be sworn in. That's the equivalent, really, of what's taking place here, especially with the bodyguards and the prophet Nathan and, and, and all that's going on. Now, when they come back to the city, they come back with great pomp and circumstance. There's music playing. Solomon goes into the palace, sits on David's throne. Adonijah was having a party. Solomon is sitting on the throne. Big, big difference. Now, I want to stop for a moment and look at one verse before we move ahead. And that's verse 29, where David talks about God who has redeemed my soul out of all distress. Now, we've studied the life of David. We have clearly seen this to be true. David has had some distress. I mean, he ran from Saul for, oh, it was like 10, 12 years. Is that math right? 20 years? It was a while. I'd have to go back and look at my notes. But he ran from Saul for a long time. That would have been stressful. He tried to hide murder from God. That would have been stressful. Now, that was his own fault. But still, he had one of his sons try to kill him. That would be stressful. And that's not including all the wars he fought so on and so forth. The, the man had some stress. But over and over again, God delivered him. And David said this over and over again uh, throughout many of the Psalms. Uh, Psalm thirty-four twenty-two is an example. The Lord redeems the soul of his servants and none of those who trust in him shall be condemned. Right? David knew. I think David got to the end of his life and he knew something very, very simple. He never got, he didn't get there by himself. He didn't get there on his own. 
He didn't get there because he really was a great king or because he really was a great warrior. He got there because God got him there. And I think honestly, uh, whether it's the rapture or whether it's a bus or whether it's some other way of dying, I don't think I'm going to get to that point and look back on my life and go, yep, look how great I am. I can tell you right now, the only reason I'm here is because of him. And I don't just mean, you know, at church in Gunness, even though that's true. The reason I'm alive, the reason I am, you know, not locked up in a, in a padded room somewhere, or the reason I'm not just actually dead is because of him. I know that. Now, I love the word redeemed. It is one of my favorite words in scripture. It means to ransom, to release, to preserve, or to deliver. But I've always looked at the word to mean adding value to something that had lost value. And this is why I've always looked at it that way. When we grew up in California, when you bought a can or you bought a bottle, it always had on the bottom California redemption value. What it would be worth if you took it to recycle. I mean, and usually it was a nickel or something. It wasn't wasn't a lot. But you could take that in and what, what is an empty can? Well, it's nothing. You throw it away or you throw it in the recycling bin. It's worthless. But if you took it to the recycling center, it might be worth a nickel. So that redemption value gave value to something that would otherwise not have value. Can you see any parallels? David recognized that God was his redeemer, that God was the one who had brought such great value, salvation and deliverance to David's life. We recognize the same thing in our own lives, in our relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And I think it says it really, really well in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 to 21. Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind. Be sober and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Right? We don't, we don't rest our hope partially on the cross of Christ. We don't rest our hope, you know, 98% on him, 2% on me. Or even 99.99999% on him and that 0.00001% on me. No, fully upon the grace of Jesus Christ. As obedient children... Not conforming yourselves to the former lusts as in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Because it is written, be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on the Father, who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things, like silver and gold, from your aimless conduct, received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who through him believed in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Oh, I like it. Okay, I love it. I like it. I love it. I want some more of it. We have been redeemed, not with corruptible things like silver and gold, from our aimless conduct, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Now, you've heard me say this before, and that's okay, I'm going to say it again. 
while there are many things in the world that have what we would say is intrinsic value, you know, like gold. Gold has been recognized throughout human history as something that is valuable. I personally would say human life in general is valuable. But something becomes more valuable based on the price someone is willing to pay for it. Now, the illustration I always use is a pen because pens are cheap. I don't don't care if you have a really nice gold pen. It's still fairly cheap in the grand scheme of things. But let's say, well, let's take my beautiful cup here that's empty. Right, so everyone knows there's melted ice in it. I mean, really, what is this cup worth? Buy a hundred of them for a buck, two bucks, three bucks. I mean, with the lids and the straw, maybe this cup is worth five cents or ten cents. But what if somebody walked in and said, I'll give you a million dollars for that cup? Okay. I'm not going to argue. I would think they're nuts. But as long as the check clears, why would I argue? Because this cup is worthless. But if somebody's willing to pay a million dollars for it, then all of a sudden this cup's worth a million dollars. End of the, the crunchy illustration. So you have to think about us. The price that God was willing to pay for us. Boy, I think that raises our value by quite a bit, doesn't it? You and I, in God's eyes, are worth the blood of his son. That's pretty astounding to me. In verse 37, they wished or said or prayed that Solomon's throne would be greater than David's. Um, which is really just a compliment. Like, you know what, David, you've been a great king. I hope your son's an even better king. You know what, David, you expanded the kingdom. I hope your son expands it even more. I mean, that's a compliment. It really is. Now, I just want to make one comment about the horn of oil, and then we'll move on. The horn of oil from the tabernacle would have been the holy oil that only the priests could use and only the priests could make according to the recipe that God gave in the law. If you remember way back, the oil that was to be used in the temple was a very specific recipe, as was the incense that was to be burned in the temple. And nobody was allowed to use that recipe. So they took a horn of that oil, this very special oil, and they poured it over Solomon's head to anoint him. Now the reason I bring that up is because oil throughout Scripture is always a picture of, of the Holy Spirit. Um, If you want a little bit of confirmation on that, you can go read Matthew chapter 25. But this anointing with oil was always meant to be a picture of the anointing of the Holy Spirit. So as David had been anointed with oil and was filled with God's Spirit to rule Israel, now Solomon was. Verse 41. I love how this chapter ends. I really do. Now, Adonijah and all the guests who were with him heard it as they finished eating. And when Joab heard the sound of the horn, he said, Why is the city in such a noisy uproar? Now, while he was still speaking, there came Jonathan, the son of Abiathar, the priest. And Adonijah said to him, Come in, for you a prominent man and bring good news. Wrong! Jonathan answered and said to Adonijah, No! Our Lord King David. Oh, wait a second. Weren't you just calling Adonijah Lord a little bit ago? How quickly our allegiances change. Our Lord King David has made Solomon king. 
The king has sent with him Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, Benaiah the son of Jehoiada, the Cherethites, the Pelethites, and they have made him ride on the king's mule. At this point in time, I just want you to picture Adonijah. I think he's starting to sweat. Right? Maybe he's shaking a little bit. Maybe he's thinking in the back of his mind, oh, poop. <laughs> you know? Just my... Just trying to make it a little more colorful. So Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet have anointed him king at Gion, and they have gone up from there rejoicing so that the city is in a rup- uproar. This is the noise you have heard. Oh, and by the way, also Solomon sits on the throne of the kingdom. And moreover, the king's servants have gone to bless our Lord King David, saying, May God make the name of Solomon better than your name, and may he make his throne greater than your throne. And then the king bowed himself on the bed. Also the king said thus, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, who has given one to sit on my throne this day, while my eyes see it. So this is where I think it gets a little funny. So all the guests who were with Adonijah were afraid, and they rose, and each one went his way. That's a really polite way of saying they ran for it. Every single one of them had committed treason. Now, Adonijah was afraid of Solomon. So he arose and he went and took hold of the horns of the altar. And it was told Solomon, saying, Indeed, Adonijah is afraid of King Solomon. For look, he has taken hold of the horns of the altar, saying, Let King Solomon swear to me today that he will not put his servant to death with the sword. Then Solomon said, If he proves himself a worthy man, not one hair of him shall fall to the earth. But if wickedness is found in him, he shall die. Remember verse 52. Because you could just look ahead to verse 13 of the next chapter and you can see what happens to Adonijah. Or you can wait till next week. I encourage you to read ahead. So King Solomon sent them to bring him down from the altar and he came and fell before King Solomon And Solomon said to him, go to your house. You talk about a bad day. Now you remember, Adonijah exalted himself. And we brought up that beautiful little verse that Jesus gave to us, that whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Adonijah exalted himself, and here, before the day is over, he is bowed down before his little brother, who was born from an adulterous relationship that resulted in murder. You don't think Adonijah was thinking, wow, that really sucks. (laughs) So let's break this down a little bit. So Jonathan, the son of Abiathar, comes in. Adonijah's like, oh, he's going to bring good news. Nope, he doesn't bring good news. He tells them what the noise they're hearing. He tells them what's going on. Tells them Solomon's sitting on the throne. So Adonijah, or all the people with Adonijah, run. And Adonijah himself runs into the temple and grabs hold of the horns of the altar. Now this was the altar of sacrifice. And this altar had four horns on it. And you have to picture on the four corners, these were horns that were bent outwards. And they were used for tying the sacrifice to the altar, right? Because the sacrifice was alive when you put it on the altar. It really wasn't a sacrifice. So he goes in and he grabs onto the horns thinking, oh, I'll be safe, right? It doesn't work. Later on, Joab's going to do the same thing. It doesn't work. And it comes back to Solomon that this happened. And he goes, well, here's the deal. He has done this because he wants you to promise not to kill him. But if you look at the language real carefully at verse 52, Solomon doesn't promise not to kill him. Solomon says, well, I'll tell you what. If he's not a wicked guy, I won't touch him. 
But if he's wicked, it's not going to work out well. So Adonijah comes in, bows before his baby brother. And his baby brother says, you can go home now. Bad day for Adonijah. I, I just, it's a bad day for Adonijah. One more quick comment and then we're going to be done. David rejoices that he gets to see his son sit on the throne. And I really love that. David himself wrote in Psalm 103, verses 17 and 18. Of course, this is under inspiration of the Spirit, but he wrote, But the mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him, and his righteousness to children's children, to such as keep his covenant, and to those who remember his commandments and do them. Now, even though David wasn't perfect, he was a man after God's own heart. He was a man who feared God. He was a man who sought to keep the covenant of God. And here he is seeing the blessing of his children. That's got to be pretty cool, I think. Next week, we're going to see David's final instructions to Solomon. Right? And, and you can read ahead. And if you, have, if you probably already know this, but David, you, you would expect David to give Solomon good instructions about following the Lord and keeping the covenant. Well, he kind of tells Solomon who he wants dead. Uh, it's interesting, but that'll be next week. Um, we will also see Solomon firmly established as king over Israel as he carry, carries out his father's final orders. We'll see David's death. That's all next week. So until then, let's pray. Father, thank you for your love for each of us. Thank you that you have shown us in your word God, both the great things that your servants of the past have done and the mistakes that they've made. I'm grateful that you show us all of that. It reminds us that they were human and so are we. It gives us at times an example to follow and at other times an example to avoid. But we can't do any of it apart from you, Father. I pray that by your grace we would all be abiding in you abiding in your word, your spirit abiding in us, so that we would bear fruit and bring you glory. In Jesus' name, amen.